Good morning, Bethel Church. Isn't it a beautiful day outside? Don't you wish we could worship outside in an amphitheater or something? Sorry, we don't have one of those. I have a couple of announcements for you before we get right to our message here. First of all, I need to just give you an update on our pastoral search uh, for a worship pastor. Uh, We are making progress in that, and we have a candidate that we have been uh, looking at here for a couple of months and sort of just going through the steps. takes time. Uh, We're not all the way there yet. We still have some things that we need to confirm uh, and work on. Um, So I just wanted to let you know we have one person in particular that we're kind of looking at with a degree of seriousness. So uh, be praying for us as we do that, that God would give the search team wisdom and discernment, that we'd be asking the right questions. And we're not, we're not looking to uh, force fit anything. We want to see if this is a natural fit for uh, this, this family and, and for ourselves. So just be praying for us. But I don't want to shock you one day and come up and say, hey, next week someone's going to come up and candidate. So there's some movement here, but we've got some way, a little ways to go, okay? So that's one. And then secondly, I need to let you know, and I think most of you probably know this by now, but if you don't know this, um, I am going to be leaving on sabbatical here uh, in just a couple of weeks. So the church has been very kind to offer its pastoral staff at the seven-year mark of service um, a sabbatical, a three-month sabbatical. And we've been here 17 years now, so this is actually our second one, and uh, I'm I'm very eager for it, I'll tell you. Um, I'm going to uh, preach uh, Easter service, and that will be my last Sunday in the pulpit for a couple months, and then I'll be back uh, in August again, uh, and that's when I'll resume preaching here. Uh, So you can pray for uh, the staff and the team while I'm gone, because they'll be a little shorthanded, and uh, go easy on them, please, and... um, uh, I, some of you will ask, so right out of the gates, I'll get to go to Turkey for a couple of weeks and to travel around looking at the expansion of the first century church. I'm going to try to capture that for my own knowledge and also for you all. So maybe when we get back, we'll go through the book of Acts and you'll have to look at some pictures, huh? What do you think? All right. I don't want to really want to know what you think. Let's get into this. Let's get into the sermon here. So if you'd open your Bibles to second Corinthians chapter 11, um, we're going to be going all the way through chapter 12, verse 10. So we have our work cut out for us today. Uh, As parents, I think one of the difficulties that we face in our parental responsibility is the gradual letting go of our kids, right? Because some weekends, it's like, I just want to let them go right now. Everybody out, right? Uh, By that, of course, I'm joking. What I mean is it's this incremental exposure to the world such as it is and trying to equip them to navigate that. And that is our strategy as parents. We don't try to shield our kids from every difficulty or danger out there. We try to give them right level of exposure along with the tools to navigate and equip a difficult world. Um, But it's tough. And we have difficult things, decisions to face as parents, such as, uh, do you allow your kids to have a smartphone? And if so, when? And if you do, what parameters do you put on it? What liberties do they have with it? Or do you allow your kids access to social media? Uh, If so, when? And again, what parameters? Do you allow your kids to go on overnight trips with uh, school or with sports teams or with the music groups that they might be participating in? Do, I mean, should should your kid ever own or drive a car? Ever, right? 
ever. So for those of you who are battling bedtime right now, let me just say, enjoy it. Because it gets harder and scarier. Uh, when you're trying to grant incremental freedoms to your kids, along with the tools to equip those to develop healthy independence, uh, that frequently has me saying to my kids a classic dad line. Keep your guard up. I think my, my kids are probably tired of hearing that one. But I say it all the time. Whether they're texting their friends or uh, getting in the car and driving to the movies or driving on an icy day. I'm constantly saying, hey, keep your guard up. These are the things that are happening around you. Just be aware of that and keep your guard up. And Paul has a similar kind of message for the Corinthians here as it relates to their faith. Having been away from them for a, for a while, he discovers that they have come under the influence of some false apostles who have been tearing down their faith. And Paul, in a fatherly kind of way, gives them almost a bit of a deadline. Hey, keep your guard up. Now, we have a big passage today, and I want to try to move through it as efficiently as possible. So if you turn your hand out over, on the back, I've given you a little box there, which is basically a one-minute summary of Paul's argumentation here. All right, This is like Cliff's notes for the sermon. Like some of you are delighted. I see that. Basically, what's happening here in this passage, in verse 1, Paul introduces this as an argument. Hey, I want you to let you know this is an argument that I'm making here. And he does that with this phrase, permit me a little foolishness. And then in verses 2 through 4, he basically states his purpose. He says, I have a godly jealousy for your devotion to Christ. That's why he's doing this. Thirdly here, Paul addresses an accusation that's been laid against him. That's verses 5 through 15. And basically, this accusation is from these false apostles in Corinth who are basically claiming that he's inferior to them and that they are super apostles. And I use air quotes there because we don't actually know if they claimed that of themselves or if Paul dubbed them that, you know, if they wore a big S on their tunic or, or what. But. And then fourthly here, Paul accepts for the sake of argument, their criteria and kind of their methodology. In other words, these guys have been boasting about themselves and about their accomplishments. And so Paul is kind of saying, hey, for the sake of argument, I'll dive into that. I'll pick that up and let's see what I have. And so those, those accomplishments that they're boasting have fall within three categories. Background, ministry experience, and even experience with the supernatural. But the conclusion that Paul gets to in uh, chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, is essentially, I'd rather boast about my non-accomplishments than my accomplishments. I'd rather boast about my weakness. I can best you in all of your boasts, but I would rather boast about my non-achievement than my achievement, uh, my weakness and my need, for that's what leads me to dependence upon Christ. And it is only in Christ that we are secure. So there's the one-minute flyover. That's how Paul traces out his arguments, okay? Now, one of the things that we say to you all the time when we're teaching here, and I hope this is burned on your mind, good Bible reading has asks three questions, right? What did this mean to the original hearers? And I've just taken you through that in one minute. Secondly, what's the timeless principle? What was relevant for them and is similarly relevant for us? And then thirdly, how is that timeless principle 
important or significant for my life kind of right here and right now. Those are the three steps, three steps that we want to progress through in doing good Bible reading. So we've already looked at sort of the timeless meaning to, to Corinth, and now we're going to develop some uh, timeless principles. And the first one is guard your devotion to Christ. Chapter 11, verse 1. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please, put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. And so Paul basically confronts the Corinthians here that they have shown themselves to be vulnerable to an adulterated faith. In other words, they're spiritual flirts. Looking around for what is new and novel, pursuing what might be a more attractive suitor, so to speak, here. Already they have crossed lines and boundaries spiritually that they should not have crossed. And so Paul basically compares the wandering of their faith to that of a wandering fiancé. And this is a special bar, especially sharp barb here because a fiancé in this particular culture wasn't just a prospective spouse. They considered him a spouse at that time. And so Paul speaks as a father would to his betrothed daughter Quit your flirtatious behavior. You're betrothed to another. And I think there are some specific implications for you and for me. First is this, that we have to guard our affections. Affections are those things that we love, those things that we want, those things that we long for. And I think there are plenty of things that come into our life, even good things that rob us of our primary affection to Christ. These are things that come in in a flattering way. They're tantalizing. They're tempting. They're half true. They're new. They're novel. I just want to remind you that the attacks of the enemy are insidious. They're not obvious, straightforward, full frontal attacks. Satan rarely walks up to you and says, Hello, I'm the prince of darkness. Come with me to your own destruction. Right? That's absurd. It's in these subtle, tempting, sneaky ways that our enemy comes after us. Typically, it's good things that are held out of balance, made to be superior things, things that we elevate over Christ. And I think to do well at guarding our affections, we have to be really good at knowing ourselves, being a good student of ourselves, knowing how we're motivated, knowing how we're tempted, knowing at different seasons in our life what vulnerabilities we have right then because those things change you notice that what was tempting to me 10 years ago isn't necessarily the thing that i'm vulnerable to now it changes all the time and i think you have to be a good student of yourself but if guarding your affections is something that kind of resonates with your heart there's a book in your notes there uh, by james k.a smith called you are what you love and i think that is an excellent book on that topic i would encourage you to pick that up Secondly here, guard your beliefs. There's some really startling words in Paul's comments here in the introduction. He basically says 
to the Corinthians, you've been exposed to another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. And of course, we understand by this perversions of, of what it is that they know or what they have initially been introduced to. But shockingly, they're taking the bait. They're putting up with it. They're tolerating it. And I think the caution to all of us is to remember that idolatry and apostasy, these are not things that happen all at once. These are things that typically come into someone's life because of a slow and steady compromise. So we need to understand that there's a battle for our heart, for our affections, but there's also a battle for our mind, that is our beliefs. You see how Paul says, your minds have somehow been led astray. And so I want to kind of put this into the realm of two different uh, sets of people. Number one, those of you who might find yourself to be new in the faith. If you're new in the faith, I want to remind you and encourage you to become grounded in your faith. God has not simply called us to be those who profess faith, but those who practice it by means of discipleship. We're to pursue a lifetime of faith. We're to be those who study the teachings of Christ, internalizing them, imitating his manner so that the character of Christ would increasingly be formed in us. We are to live as Christ's apprentices, to use a good Fairbanks word, right? To be an apprentice of Christ. And some real practical things that you can do to that end. If you're younger in the faith, I would encourage you, find someone who is older in the faith, whose faith you admire, and just ask them, be bold and ask them, listen, I need someone to disciple me, to encourage me, to be a mentor of sorts. Would you be willing to, or could you direct me to someone who could, could help me deepen my faith and equip me for walking with God? So maybe go to someone. Secondly, consider, absolutely consider taking Pastor Adam's core curriculum Sunday school classes here at the church. They are excellent. It's like a mini seminary uh, training for free. Uh, and you will, you will benefit from them greatly. So consider taking that. And thirdly, I would say, be faithful in your attendance at church. Coming here regularly and worshiping God together is a way that we cultivate an affection for the Lord. It is a way that we recalibrate our hearts. It is a way that we remind ourselves of truths. Because all week long, day in and day out, we are constantly bombarded by false messages and the lies of the world. And this is the place we come back to, not just for the truth, but to cultivate our affections for Christ. I would also say this. If you are not studying as a Christian, you are atrophying as a Christian. If you are not studying as a Christian, as a disciple, you're atrophying. There's no middle ground. You're either moving forward in maturity or you're regressing. The second group I want to run this, uh, this kind of into their lives is, is those, maybe, uh, those of you who have been in the faith for a while. I think one of the risks for those who have been Christians a very long time is boredom and apathy and just fatigue with the status quo. In other words, it's not just those who are young and naive who fall prey to dangerous movements and false teachings, but sometimes it's those who are older, who have been around a while, who have been walking around with wounds, who are fatigued and just tired of the status quo. And their faith grows cold, and they begin looking for something 
novel. Uh, and then a new teacher comes along, or a new teaching, a little cooler version of the same thing they've heard before. Sure, this person is a little fast and loose with their theology or with their hermeneutics. The next thing you know, they're neck deep in a cult or a dangerous movement. I love what A.W. Tozer said. Whatever is novel in Christianity will be moldy in a few years. Isn't that good? If you're looking for a legitimate way, if you've been in the faith for a while and you're looking for a legitimate way to stimulate your faith, then I would encourage you to do this. Share it with others. Share your faith, especially with someone who is younger in the faith than you or someone who doesn't know Christ yet at all. It will allow you to re-articulate the truths that you know. It will allow you to say again what you have discovered and to sort of relive that and experience it again. And then when you see someone younger in the faith discovering these great truths for the first time and you see their excitement and their zeal, you get to take that in as well. Um, I see this same phenomenon uh, with grandparents and grandchildren, right? You look at someone's life, you know, you, you get married, you have your kids, and your kids get older, and then you send them out, and you enter your empty nest years, which look fabulous, by the way, right? Empty nest years. Are those the golden years? Yes, it is. <laughs> I love it. It looks great. It looks great. But I imagine at a certain point, too, you look around, and you're like, huh, I got a whole lot more of my spouse than I bargained for here. It's just the two of us. Ooh. And then maybe things kind of just get old or get stale. I, I don't know. And then grandkids come along. And you guys, you see this in other people's lives, right? There is a revitalization that happens. They light up. As good as life was, it's better now. They get to have an influence in these kids and spoil them and then send them home, right? And let me just say this. If you're a granny in the faith, you might need some grandchildren in your faith. You might need the wake-up of their enthusiasm and their joy and a younger person's discovery of what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. And watching them embrace the gospel and seeing it come alive in their life. You might need a grandchild in the faith. If you're feeling like things are stale and bleak, Invest yourself in the life of another. They need you, and you need it as well. Thirdly here, guard against heretical or aberrant teaching. Guard against heresy or aberrant teaching. Heresy is anything that is against the clear and accepted teaching of orthodoxy. And probably most of us would recognize that. Aberrant teaching is one that I think we give too much room for. Aberrant teaching is when something starts to deviate. It's just peeling away. It's when the rip starts. It's when the rending starts. And I am amazed at how much license modern Christians give to aberrant teaching and even heresy just because it comes into their life in attractive packaging, right? A catchy book title directed to my own gender, no less. Or one of the, I think, real ways that we're susceptible today is in Christian music. And I'm not talking about Christian music out on the periphery. I'm talking about the stuff on the two stations that you listen to and I listen to throughout the week. There are dangerous things that come in through that. And um, I have an example for you this morning 
I feel it as part of my job as your pastor to ruin music for you occasionally. (laughs) There's a new song out right now by a group uh, called Elevation Music. This group, along with Jesus Culture and Bethel Music, all three of those are tied to Bethel Church Reading in California that we've cautioned you about, a dangerous and aberrant uh, church. And this song, and here's the thing, some of their songs are great. Nothing I could see that's wrong with them. And some of them have little things, a little bit of aberrance there. Uh, This song is out just in time for Easter. It's called Resurrecting. And I'll tell you what, it sounds great. I love the music. It's stuck in my head, and I'm critiquing it. And it's got some great images and, and, and verbiage, too. It starts off saying, the head that was once crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. Oh, that's good. That's a good turn of phrase. I like that. It goes on. The Savior knelt to wash our feet. Now at his feet we bow. That's good. I, I like that turn. And it goes on from there. And then uh, it says this. It says, it gets to the chorus, your name, your name is victory. Now, that maybe doesn't sound so bad, but let me ask you the question. Is that God's name? It's not. God has revealed his name to us. It's Yahweh, the I am. Or if we want to be specific to our Savior, Jesus, Yeshua, means Savior. And, and you might think, well, Eric, you're just nitpicking. And I am a little bit. I am a little bit. I wanted to give you a real modern example here. But if you call me Katrina, I'm going to be upset. That's my sister's name. If you call me Frida, that's not me. I don't even know a Frida, right? Do we get to call God by any name we choose? Do we get to name our God? We name our pets. By ascribing whatever name we want to God, are we domesticating him? Perhaps. The song goes on, and I'll tell you, there is no reference to sin in the song as the thing that Christ has saved us from. It it goes on to uh, talk about, my spirit will rise from the ashes of defeat, and it just seems to be that the, the cross and the resurrection seem to maybe somehow lift me out of the difficult circumstances of life, but they don't speak to Christ's sacrifice as an atonement for sin the propitiation for my sin and that which has rescued me. It's subtle. It's deviating. That's the kind of thing I want to put on your radar. Ask yourself the question, is this true? Is this true? Moving on here. Guard against the influence of imposters. Uh, Whereas Paul's first warning would have us watch out for dangerous content, Here, it seems that he moves into watching out for dangerous people in regards to our faith. Look at verse 5. I do not not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. I think there's an important distinction here that's being made that unfortunately gets muddled all the time in the church, and so I want to pause to deal with it. Here we can see... The issue at hand, right? These, these other apostles have basically critiqued Paul saying, hey, you don't have this specific training that we've all received in rhetoric. We've talked about sort of the, the sophists of the day in Corinth and sort of that was almost like the, the popular spectacle or the popular sport of the day. 
Paul wasn't trained in that same manner, and they used that against him. And he acknowledges, yeah, I haven't been trained in speaking, but I do have what? I have knowledge. And this knowledge came through training. And again, I think this is an important distinction to make here because, again, it gets muddled all the time because there are those in Christianity today who belittle education and knowledge, sometimes referring even to theological training or theological degrees as a piece of paper. But notice Paul doesn't belittle it. He says he has knowledge. He claims to have it, and this came through training. In fact, I think in the providence of God, Paul received his training. It was actually under a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel, where he was trained in the law. And we see this in Acts 22 and Acts 5. In other words, Paul was a bright guy, and God uses the brilliant man and his education and the resulting knowledge to undergird his ministry as the chief apologist of the church. The knowledge that benefited him, his ministry, and is benefiting us today. So here's what I want to say. Uneducated is not the high moral ground of Christianity. Okay? Let us not have an anti-intellectual faith. Now that being said, we can also err to the other side. We can err to either side of the education continuum, right? We can place too high a value on it and end up with ivory tower elitism, a knowledge that never touches ground in people's lives. And we can place too low a value on it and end up in embarrassing ignorance, leaving ourselves vulnerable to the attacks of others. But Paul's point to the Corinthians here in a nutshell is, hey, you guys seem to be in favor of style over substance. This rhetoric. And in a sense, you can keep your style. I've got the substance. We have the goods of the gospel. So his rebuttal, I think, leaves us with three markers of of false teachers or of dangerous people. Number one, watch out for those who claim special status, such as these super apostles are. They're claiming to have a specific training that others don't have, therefore others don't know. And I want to remind you of the glorious truth that is taught to us in the scriptures of the priesthood of believers. There is a level ground in Christianity. God has called all of us to be priests. And in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, we're taught this. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Don't let somebody claim special status. Watch out for those who claim to have the corner of the market of truth, who claim to have special knowledge. In the first and second century, it was a group known as the Gnostics, a take on the Greek term for knowledge. And they were those who claimed to have a special knowledge, a special revelation, not given to all. And I think one of the places we see this same kind of thing happening today is actually in some Pentecostal arenas, where someone claims to have a word from the Lord, or a speaking in tongues, or a vision, or a prophecy. Now let me let you know where I'm coming from here. I don't claim to be a cessationist, so I'm not, I don't think that all of those gifts have necessarily ceased. Uh, the scriptures, I don't think, allow me to do that. Neither, on the other hand, do I think that they're normative for all people and to be expected all the time. So where's my position? 
Well, somewhere in the nuanced middle, and I don't have time for that today. But I will say this. Where there is speaking in tongues in the scripture, what is instructed to happen there, there's to be an interpretation. Where there is a prophecy given, if one starts to speak and another speaks, the first one is to be silent. Where any prophecy is given, it is to be tested. And so what I find is that you almost never see in the Pentecostal expression a practice that fits the manner of the prescription of Scripture. Typically, it's a special person of some elevated status, right? Giving a special word, a special knowledge, and it's not tested by another, interpreted by another, or validated by another. It's left unimpeachable. This is the kind of thing that Paul warns against here. Another thing we're cautioned about is sort of in the realm of financial matters. Watch out for financial entanglements. Look at verse 7 with me. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and I will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And it is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And so we saw this first caution here, watch out for special status. Watch out also for financial entanglements. And financial entanglements of those who would mislead or harm others Uh, can take lots of different sorts of shapes. We're typically, in our culture, suspicious of somebody who is receiving money for their ministry. But in Corinth, it was just the other way around. Paul was criticized for not being compensated by them for his ministry. It was his lack of professionalism, if you want to call it that, that left him open to critique. Throughout Paul's ministry, he has defended the right of anybody who labors in the gospel to make a living from the gospel. We see that in 1 Corinthians 9. And sometimes Paul used that right. At other times, he laid that right aside. What's interesting, and this was something I learned in my study this week, is that Paul consistently avoided receiving payment directly from those he was ministering to. That was one of his primary ways of sort of guarding himself against financial entanglement. So he might receive uh, funding for his ministry, but typically it came from a church where he wasn't presently at. And I think that's kind of a fascinating thing that Paul does to protect particularly his ministry as an apostle, where he's taking the gospel into new territories. And there were other times where Paul and his ministry companions would work a job. They would work as a tent maker or uh, as a leather worker and not receive any remuneration for their ministry, but just work a job to fund their own ministry. But I think what we need to see here is there are all kinds of ways that one can get embroiled in financial entanglements, right? Greed, 
patronage, favors, lack of accountability, lack of transparency. And these are just some of the financial entanglements that typically accompany those who are imposters, those who have wrong intentions in ministry. The third thing to watch out for here is be aware of appearances. They can be deceiving. In other words, not everyone who claims the name of Christ is actually working for Christ. They may not even be in the family of God. There are plenty of charlatans out there who use the mantle of ministry for self-serving reasons. I like the way Amy's grandmother says it best. Billy McDaniels, with her southern draw, used to say, all kind of bugs are drawn to the light. <laughs> Same kind of thing here. And unfortunately, there are plenty of people who would use the light of Christ to prey upon innocent people. And you know some of their names. Jim Jones, Charles Manson, David Koresh, and on and on. And these are just the big headline names. But for every one of these, there are a thousand others who do the same kinds of things in smaller contexts, in smaller arenas, but are nonetheless dangerous. How do you spot an imposter? Jesus gave us the means by which we would do that in Matthew 7. By your fruit you will know them. By what is produced in their life you will know them. Look at the outcome of their ways. By their fruit you will know them. And so all of us as Christians must constantly be testing those who would seek to have an influence upon us. Thirdly, guard against boasting of accomplishments. Now in this next section here, Paul takes great pains to let us know that what he is about to say and his manner of speaking here uh, is purely for the sake of argument. Right? It's like devil's advocate and he's letting us know in no uncertain terms this is what I'm doing. He started this whole passage with this. Permit a little foolishness in me. I'm introducing an argument. And he comes back to it here in verse 16. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I might do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but like a fool. Again, he's just introducing us to this argument. Since there are many boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool here, remember, again, for the sake of argument, I dare to boast about. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. 
I've labored and toiled, and I have often gone, uh, I have often gone without sleep, and I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. That's a funny little story there. We're going to come back to in a second. I must go on boasting, even though there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. Even if I should choose to boast, I would, not be, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surprising great revelations. Whew, there's a lot there. Uh, the good news is we're going to hit it very, very quickly. Three areas of boasting here among the false apostles that Paul addresses. Number one is background or pedigree, where they're from. The second one is history of service what their ministry has entailed. And Paul laid out quite a, quite a repertoire there of what he's been through. And then thirdly is experience with the supernatural. And I, wanna, I think the first two are sort of obvious enough, but I want to look at this third one here because I think it's a little puzzling. In verses 1 through 7, I think Paul is actually talking about himself. I think this was his experience. I think he's referring to himself in the third person. I know a guy. The 14 years ago timeline corresponds to the time of his conversion. The events fit the description that we find in Acts, although with some additional details that we would expect. And I think the reason that Paul refers to this event in the third person is simply a matter of humility. Even though he is, for the sake of argument, making these boasts here, it's like he can't quite bring himself to even pretend to boast about that encounter For that's the encounter that his life pivoted on. Where he met God as his savior. In the grace of God. And so he almost reminds me of the Apostle John. I don't know if you remember this. When the Apostle John writes his gospel, he refers to himself as, do you remember this? The disciple Jesus loved. He's too humble to even name himself in, in his own gospel. And I think Paul is doing the same thing here when he says, I know a guy. I also think it's interesting here that though Paul had this encounter which propelled his ministry, it doesn't become the substance of his ministry. In other words, having had this supernatural encounter, Paul doesn't set out to develop these schemes to manufacture supernatural encounters for others. The substance of Paul's ministry was reconciling sinful mankind to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ not camping on supernatural phenomena. And so overall here, I think Paul's playing devil's advocate with the resume of those 
who sort of claimed a self-righteousness based on their achievements. And he strikes down their claim to superiority by basically saying, I've got all the same accolades, and I ain't counting on them. That's not what makes me uh, secure with Christ. Now, somebody could come to us and say, you know what, climbing Mount McKinley, running a marathon or a super marathon, no big deal. Cakewalk, easy. And if they've never done any of those things, we'd like to punch them in the nose, right? Because that's a dumb thing to say. But Paul is basically saying here, I have these accolades. I have them. I can best you in all of your boasts. But I'm not secure in those things. And he actually uses a funny and sort of dramatic illustration to emphasize this point. He talks about this scenario where he had to be lowered from a wall, right, in this, uh, in this uh, what is this, in the city of the Damascenes that was guarded, right? And he's actually talking here to a military community, a retirement military community. So imagine speaking to somewhere like Annapolis or Colorado Springs or Coronado Island. And the military had a particular commendation that they would give for the first person who would scale a wall in the siege against an enemy. Kind of like a bronze star or a medal of honor or something like that. And so Paul is basically talking about commendations here. And sort of in that discussion, he says, hey, guess what? To those of you who you know, might receive a commendation for going over that wall first, I had to be lowered from a wall. I couldn't even get down myself. And I wasn't running into the battle. I was leaving. And so it's this kind of pronounced moment of self-deprecation. You're boasting on your accomplishments. I'm happy to boast in my weaknesses, even these embarrassing moments. Why? Because that's what leads me to weakness, and weakness leads me to Christ, and Christ leads me to security with God. That's where I am held. The more boastful we are in our accomplishments, the more secure we are in our personal goodness, the more we create a sense of self-righteousness, the further we are from the gospel of grace, the only place that we are safe. Lastly here, recognize God's goodness in giving weakness. Verse 7, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulty, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Tim Keller, one of the uh, great writers and speakers today, who annoys me all of the time with the clarity of his arguments and how crisp he can be, I think gives us a great line to end on. He says this, Suffering awakes us out of our haunted sleep of spiritual self-sufficiency into a serious search for the divine. Don't boast in your strengths, Christian. Boast in your weaknesses, because it's in that that you know that you need Christ, and in Christ alone you are secure. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a big, thick passage with lots of stuff in it. I pray, Lord, that the simple truth would come true loud and clear.
None of us is saved by our accomplishments, our goodness, our good intentions, trying harder, doing a little more good than bad. All of us are desperately in need of a Savior, wrecked by sin through and through. And God, this morning as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the extents that you needed to go to to rescue our souls which were lost. The death of your beloved Son and his resurrection for our sake. So we turn our hearts and minds to the Lord's Supper now, rejoicing in our weakness so that we might cling to our Savior Christ who alone can save. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.